All right, you okay? Happy Sunday to you. If you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. We are in a, a study of the book of Revelations. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the very last book of the Bible all the way to your right and find Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, as you turn there. I want to give thanks to Addison and to Trell Ross, who had the opportunity to fill our pulpit last week. They gave you two great texts, one from 2 Timothy 1, one from Psalm chapter 2, which uh, I've been meaning to preach throughout the whole book of Revelation. And when Trell says, I'm going to preach that, I said, fantastic. That means I don't have to do it. It's a really important one uh, when you're interpreting really the whole book of Revelation to see who Jesus is and why he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father and declared to be uh, king over all the earth. Well, let me give you a little bit of a running start as to where we've been in this book uh, up to this point. We looked at Revelation 12 and Revelation 13. Uh, and these in the book of Revelation are dark chapters. Uh, we saw in Revelation 12, Satan himself, the devil, cast down from heaven as God begins to cleanse heaven of the accusations that the devil, the accuser, uh, accuses the brethren day and night before the throne. And God in Revelation 12 says no more. He's cast down to earth. And then at the end of Revelation 12, it says, uh, Rejoice heaven, but woe to you earth, for the devil has come down in great wrath, for he knows his time is short. And that sets you up for Revelation 13, uh, another incredibly dark part of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 13, you have Satan who comes down and calls the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land, you see the Antichrist who's given the authority and power of Satan himself to rise to uh, power. He has what I call the divine hype man in the false prophet who now does signs and wonders to deceive the nations and all of those who dwell on the earth. And we looked at Revelation 13 and said there were a couple commandments or a counsel that Revelation 13 gives for believers who are on earth at that time. This is a call, John writes, for the endurance and the faith of the saints. That they are going to live in a time of wickedness, in a dark day where it looks like politics, economics, the religious world system are all going to serve the ends of the Antichrist. And then we got to the end of Revelation 13. At the end of Revelation 13, you have a call for a mind of wisdom to understand that, that Christians are going to be able, with this insider biblical knowledge, to understand what is happening in the culture of their day. Now, is that depressing? Man, it's like politics, economics, religion. There's wrath from God fallen on the planet. Satan's in charge. The false prophet, the Antichrist have risen to power. It looks like everything is a mess. And in the midst of that context comes Revelation chapter 14. And Revelation 14 is this beautiful, victorious, conquering picture. Revelation 14 is um, what commentators called a proleptic vision. It's a vision of the end that is given in the middle of the book. So when you see chronology happening, we've said throughout the book of Revelation that there are these biographical sections that show you people and we've seen the Antichrist and the false prophet. And what we're going to see now are the 144,000. And we haven't seen them for seven, seven chapters. If you remember, if you're in Revelation 14, just flip back with me for a second to Revelation chapter 7. Keep your finger in 14. Look at Revelation 7. 
After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And I heard the number sealed, 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So we see their sealing in Revelation chapter 7. Now throughout the book of Revelation, go back to Revelation 14, these individuals have had a significant ministry during the last seven years on the planet. They are like 144,000 Daniels or 144,000 Apostle Pauls who've been sealed for God's purposes to preach the gospel message throughout the time when the culture is in upheaval and the wrath of God is falling from heaven. These individuals are sealed and protected for God's purposes during the last days. Now you have their sealing in Revelation 7. You have their ministry that happens throughout of the tribulation period. But what you haven't seen so far is who they are, what they're like, what their character is. And in Revelation 14, we have another biographical section that shows you the character of these individuals. You ever wonder what God is doing in you today? You ever wonder, in my spiritual journey, what is happening in my life? What are the areas of my life that God wants to develop, that, that I need to be dedicated and devoted to God's purposes in my life? Well, Revelation 14, you ever, you know, uh, you and I need, we're a church that loves discipleship. We love helping people take their next step with Jesus. We love the process of spiritual growth and being transformed from one image of glory to the next, right? That, that's great, and we love that. But discipleship is not just a process. You and I need to know where discipleship is heading. You with me? And Revelation 14 is a picture of victory. It's a picture, if, you've, if you read Revelation once a year, you get to the end of the book and you realize one very important thing, that Jesus wins and he fixes everything. And for us to process and understand spiritual progress, we have to have a vision of where we're headed. We have to have an understanding of what God is doing in me he will ultimately and finally complete. Do you believe that? That he'll get me there. Remember what A.J. preached from the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to blah, blah, blah and present you pure and spotless from any such thing before the throne of God with great joy. What Addison preached for us from 2 Timothy chapter 1, I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what has been trusted in me for that day. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We need those reminders, don't we? We need to know that he hasn't abandoned us, he hasn't left us here, but that he is actively, intentionally working in you and me to create the image of Christ-likeness. And Revelation 14 shows you that his, he has not abandoned his work and he will complete the work that he started. 
So this is such an encouraging text to you and I. I'm going to give you about five or six things about the marks of these disciples, the marks of these people who've been sealed with the seal of the living God. They're all going to start with S, so you'll, I'll, I'll pull them out as, you, as we see them throughout this passage. But let's pray, and let's ask God for his grace as we jump into this text here today. Pray with me. Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the, rev- and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Would we, this morning, through your word and through the power of your spirit, see things about you that perhaps we haven't seen before? Would we leave this place singing and confident and joyful that you have not abandoned the work of your hands, that you love us, that you've pursued us, that you've died for us, to make us totally devoted and dedicated servants of who you are? May we be a church that pours our life out for your purposes. Would you teach us here this morning through your word? Would your spirit come and and, uh, bring to life the image of Christ in our hearts today? We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake, amen. All right, look at Revelation 14. Now, as I said, 12 and 13, really, really dark. And you've got to, if you're John, you've got to feel like everything is a mess in Revelation 12 and 13. And now John turns and he sees another vision. You're going to see a lot of contrast to Revelation 13. You're going to see the sealing of Revelation 13 with the mark of the beast. You're going to see the sealing again in Revelation 14 with the lamb. You're going to see the dragon who's standing on the sand. You're going to see the lamb standing on a mountain. You're going to see the people who take the mark of the beast and uh, can buy and sell according to the world economy of the day, and you're going to see the people who take the mark and now serve the purposes of God in their generation. So it's, a, it's meant to be a contrasting picture for you and I and for John to see. Look at verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now we've seen the Lamb standing before in this book, haven't we? All the way back in Revelation chapter 5, we saw the Lamb standing as if slain. You remember that? And now we have the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion originally was a stronghold that David took over. And it became the seat of David's rule. It's in Jerusalem, essentially. Mount Zion is referred to in a lot of kind of different places throughout the Bible. But essentially, it's it's the place where the Davidic king rules and reigns. Joel 2, uh, Isaiah 23, Zechariah 14, different spots in your Bible. You remember uh, Psalm 2 from last week where I have installed my king on Mount Zion. You remember that? That's God declaring Jesus to be the one true and rightful king, the Davidic heir, and where he is going to rule is going to be in Mount Zion. So already we've seen the temple of God marked out with the two witnesses and the Antichrist rising and killing the two witnesses and the two witnesses rising from the dead and now the Antichrist taking his seat in the temple of God and now here comes the one true divine king who has the right to rule and reign and he is standing on Mount Zion in total and complete victory and here he stands now look at the remainder of the verse and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There's your contrast to what we saw in Revelation chapter 13. Now we said in Revelation 13, the sign or the seal of the living God from Revelation chapter 7 or the mark that is on the 
uh, on the hands and the forehead of the earth dwellers at the time who follow after the beast does two things. One, it identifies the individuals. Hard to hide that mark on your forehead when you're walking around, right? So it identifies the individuals in their day and in their culture as following the lamb and who he is. And number two, what it does is it's a testimony that they don't follow anybody else. They renounce any and all other gods. This is the divine tension as you move forward in the book of Revelation, that it's worship of the beast or worship of the lamb. It's the sheep who follow the lamb or the goats who follow the dragon. That ultimately the book of Revelation is sifting out people and making them decide who are you going to follow. So that here are these individuals written with the name of God, sealed with the seal of the living God, and they in this day and in this time are seen as victorious over the culture, the economics, the perversion, the false worship, the false signs and wonders that are happening, and they have won. And I want to just, as we jump into this, I want you to see Revelation 14. Do you know that where we are headed is to ultimate and final victory? It's not this uncertain process of discipleship where we're not really sure what is going on. That when you step into a relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you now begin to take on the characteristics of Christ-likeness that will ultimately be fulfilled and ultimately be worked into your soul. Do you believe that? Say amen. You with me? That's what's happening. We are being transformed from one image to another image that Jesus won't leave us alone, which is so bothersome, right? You ever be walking with Jesus through the courses of your life and you realize Jesus is now revealing more and more ugliness in your heart and who you are that you have to repent of because he loves you too much to let you alone. And in this time and day, these individuals are seen in their culture as following the lamb explicitly. Remember what Jesus calls us? You are the light of where? The world. Daniel chapter 12 says, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Peter says that we shine like lights in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. That's what a Christian is. So that when you go into your workplace, into your classroom, into your family reunion, into your vacation, you are meant to be the light of Christ in that place. And these individuals, having been sealed with the seal of the living God, are seen at the beginning of John's vision. John turns from the darkness of his day, and he turns and looks and sees victory. Now, look at 2, verse 2. I heard a voice from heaven. Now you're going to see about three different things of this voice. Like the roar of many waters. Think Niagara Falls and the roar of that. Anybody ever been to Niagara? There you go. A few of you. Is it loud? Yeah, it's super loud. I've never been there. I watched it on YouTube and I turned it up real high and I was like, that is loud. <laughs> that is really loud. 
like the roar of many waters. Not only that, it sounds like loud thunder. You ever have thunder? Yeah, you know, we get these uh, low country thunderstorms, and we had like lightning hit like our, it didn't hit anything. It felt close enough to like, you know, keep people up for four hours. You know, when you have small kids, that's what happens at the end of the day. When you go, oh great, the thunderstorm is here at eight o'clock at night, perfect. This is great. Uh, this sound is, is deafening. Not only is it the sound of, of loud waters, it's the sound of, of lightning and thunder roaring. And then number three, this is very strange. I don't know if I would put this in here as a descriptor of the voice that I hear, but the voice is also described as the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I don't, is a harp solo loud? I, I have no idea. But I don't know if I would attach harps now to this picture, but John does. Now, harps in the Old Testament have to do consistently with joy. So imagine the rolling thunder and the, the loud uh, roar of waters that is now consistent with a timber and a pitch and a musicality that comes from heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, when you saw the Lamb, it's as if all of heaven, the angels, those on earth, above the earth, under the earth, the four living creatures, the elders around the throne, everybody turns when they see the Lamb. And there's this explosion of joy. And John tries to capture it for us. To see that as these 144,000 stand on the mountain of Zion, in total and complete victory over any and all adversary, over the devil and the antichrist and the false prophet of their day and their culture going bonkers, heaven itself sings. Verse three, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. What an interesting thing to say. Now, it doesn't give us really any explanation as to why this is a song that heaven knows and only the 144,000 can learn it. But throughout the Old Testament, new songs are very important songs. See, a new song shows up in the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 5 and talking about the lamb again. They sang a new song saying, worthy is the lamb for you were slain and you ransomed people from every tribe and people and language and nation. That heaven itself recognizes this multi-ethnic ransoming of the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But now we don't have the lamb's victory so much, though it's, it's here it's not ignored because they stand with the lamb, but these individuals have a new song in their mouth. Why do they have a new song in their mouth? New songs have to do with new experiences of God's mercy and grace in our lives. Do you ever experience as you're walking with God and God does something to remind you of his goodness and his patience and his kindness and his redemption and, and the sweetness of a relationship with him? Suzanne and I... Uh, when we got married, we, uh, we decided to see how far we could stretch our pennies and have a whole bunch of kids real fast. And uh, I, I bought a Suburban when gas was like three fifty a gallon, right? A brilliant economic decision. And uh, we uh, had a Suburban, and we had like um, 
we had two babies that were like nine months and one on the way, and we drove up to this um, used car sales spot up in Somerville, Monk's Corner maybe. And I, so I was getting my two kids in two car seats out of the back door of a two-door Honda. I thought to myself, if this guy can't sell me a car, he's the worst salesman ever. So we buy this Suburban and we fill it up. The first time we fill it up, it costs us like $105 to fill up the Suburban. I'm going, what in the world did I do? And we've got medical debt. We've now got a car payment on this thing. And we used to sing this song to, the, to our little girls. Our God is so great, so strong and so mighty. Nothing our God cannot do. Our mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his hand. Right, with all our kids. That's what we're doing. We're singing in the car and doing all this. Kids are loving that song. And then we had somebody come into our life because we had medical debt from like three different places. It was like the OBGYN, the hospital, the, you know, the anesthesiologist, all of It's a racket. Don't get me started. And, and, uh, and then we've got this, this truck because I can't drive my kids anywhere. I had one car and I was like, we should probably get a second car instead of making you know, my wife stay at home with three babies and not be able to go anywhere. So we get this car. And we had somebody come into our life who had the ministry of check writing. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they were called to be like, my job is to alleviate the weight in your life. And we'd sing this song. Our God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. Anybody know this song? Is this just our song? Is our family song? Okay, a couple. Thank you. Uh, and we would change the song. Because as this guy came into our life and started writing us these checks, and he would pay off the OBGYN, and he would pay off the hospital, and he decided to pay off our suburban. He goes, anything else you need? And I go, I don't, I mean, a down payment on something? I don't know what. I'll just take a down payment, if that's what, you're just writing checks. And we, start, we changed the song. The mountains are his, suburbans are his, the stars are his hand, right? Because we experienced God showing up and ministering to us in a way where he took the weight out of our lives. Right? That, he, that he stepped into our lives and made himself visible and seen and known as the one who provides all my needs. Now, here's these 144,000 standing in victory and they can't help but sing. See, you guys who are, you know, as you walk through your life with Jesus Christ, you will have and you will sing new songs. You will have experiences as you walk with Jesus Christ where he will become greater and deeper and sweeter and more gracious and more merciful and more forgiving and more kind than you have ever imagined. That's why when the saints gather and we sing, we don't sing, me, so obedient, me, so good, right? We don't sing those songs. We sing, he is amazing and wonderful and kind and forgiving and gracious, See, Christians are commanded to sing. You don't whistle out of discipline unless you're practicing for something, right? You whistle out of delight. You sing out of joy that is in your heart because of God and who he is and what he has done. And here are the 144,000 saying, he has been faithful. He saw me to the end. He was strong and mighty on our behalf. He was our defender and our refuge and our fortress. Remember how Psalm 2 ends? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the 144,000 sing. Now let's look at their character. I want you to see this here from, uh, 
Now, I've given you, they're seen. Let me give you some S's, right? They're seen in Revelation 14, 1. They've got a song in Revelation 14, 2 and 3. Now, I want you to see this in Revelation 14, verse 4. This is where we're going to look at their sexuality, which seems to be an odd thing to highlight. Revelation 14, 4, it's these who have not defiled themselves with women. Defiled, it's used earlier in the book of those in Sardis, where Jesus says to the Sardis church, I have some there who have not soiled their garments. That during their day and time, they haven't looked like the culture. Now, could I do some preaching right here? Revelation 14.4 says they haven't defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who sealed by the living God for the purposes and the ministry of their day stand distinct from the sexual temptation, the sexual perversion of their day. Now, let me talk about this. In the last days... We've seen sexual immorality happen in the book of Revelation already. That sexual immorality typically is connected to false, false worship, to idol worship in the book of Revelation. So you may have two ideas at work right here. Let me give you one that's kind of figurative from 2 Corinthians 11. I'll just read it to you. You can take a note and read it later. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed to you to one husband to present you as pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That during this time when false worship and the sexual perversion that goes along with it is both permitted, exalted, and um, everything else in between, these individuals stand distinct from their culture when it comes to who they follow spiritually. That they're spiritually pure when they come and worship and serve the purposes of the Lamb. But I think literally speaking, this text is too explicit that it tells us these individuals stand distinct. Now it's probably that they're unmarried because marital sexuality doesn't defile anyone. But that in their time, where there is sexual perversion everywhere, these individuals remain pure. All the way down to their sexual desires. Now, we live in a time when sexual perversion and sexual licentiousness and a, and a pursuit of anything and everything that I want sexually will only and always be applauded in our culture. So let me, I want to say two things about this that are really, really important. One, if you're single in the room and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not JV. Do I need to say it again? You are not less than. You are not unqualified in your pursuit of following the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has for you. Because you are not, you are choosing to stay sexually celibate, sexually pure. In a time and place where there is sexual perversion everywhere, you can be content and joyful 
in your relationship with Jesus Christ and be used by him mightily. I did a whole sermon on this about a year and a half ago from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 on why the church needs singles. Why the church needs to see that people can be content and joyful and uh, following Jesus Christ and standing distinct from a sexual purity standpoint in their culture. The church needs to see that. Read Revelation, I'm sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul ends his writing to the married folks saying, I do this so that you might be undistracted and that you might have a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. So if you're single, don't be waiting for sexual fulfillment in marriage before you start obeying now. My wife has like four hours of sermon material on this where she pursued God's plans and God's mission and God's vision for her in, during her single life. She was about the ministry. She cared for others. She was hospitable. She was pure. She pursued serving those who did not have somebody to serve them. And she made her life about what it means to follow Jesus Christ in the season of life God has given to her. That's number one. Number two Nobody's going to tell you this on TV, but Jesus has full rights and authority to tell you how to use your body. He, First Corinthians chapter 6, you have been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. It's not just Jesus out here empowering me to do kind of lots of ministry stuff, but the inside parts of my sexual desires that I feel like are unfulfilled are on me to fulfill them. Jesus has the right to tell you how to use your sexual desires, to tell you to be pure, to tell you to stand distinct from a culture, to tell you to guard your eyes from what you see on the internet. You with me? He, he, he the boss, right? He's the king. He's the one who says. So that in this time and place, these individuals are singing a song of God's goodness to them. They're not bitter over the fact that Jesus has asked something hard of them in a dark day. Now, one last thing. I said two, I'm going to give you three. Bonus. This is all through the New Testament and the letters. No matter who you are, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're a widow, whether you're an old single, whether you're a young single, we are all called to honor God with our bodies. And there's nothing more devastating is for individuals to come into the church and to hear that I haven't lived up to the sexual ethic that the New Testament and Jesus Christ requires and to feel this guilt and this shame that haunts them in their relationship with God. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to read it to you so that you get the full weight of the kind of freedom that is available to you. If you have sinned sexually, if you are feeling and experiencing the weight of guilt and shame, then you need to get alone with Jesus Christ and experience the sin-canceling, shame-crushing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Do you not know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Period. 
there is too much in our culture that says that sin and Jesus can coexist. That is not true. That Jesus has the rights over my entire life, all the way down to my sexuality. And here's what, John, here's what Paul says. And such were some of you. You used to be defined this way. You used to be defined by the sins that you have committed that have broken fellowship between you and others and broken fellowship between you and God. These things used to have the last say in your life, but such were, you see past tense? Such were some of you, but you were washed, amen? Amen? You were sanctified, amen? You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You now have a brand new identity because of what Jesus has done for you, which means he has the right to tell you how to use your body. Okay, we good on that? This verse ain't even done yet. You got sexuality, you got, a, you got them seen, you got their song, you got their sexuality. Now look at this next part. It's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Now in context, this is making my point that I just said, right? He has the authority to determine how and where I use my body, both in marriage and both as a pure single. But the thing I want you to highlight here is the idea of steps. All through the New Testament, Paul talks about our walk, which means our conduct in the way we live our lives is meant to look a certain way. And the thing that makes these 144,000 stand out is the fact that they have resigned the authority over their own life. See, a lot of times we like Jesus next to us and Jesus is affirming the things that we plan to go and do, right? Jesus, I'm gonna go do this over here in my job. And would you affirm that over here, Jesus? And Jesus, I'm gonna go do this with my money. And Jesus, would you affirm what I'm doing over here? But that's not how the relationship with Christ works. Anyone who must come after me must, one, deny himself. Which means I renounce any and all authority and power over my own life because I'm not that smart. I'm not that godly. I don't even know what's best for me. I am a sheep. And now these individuals are characterized by following Jesus, following the lamb, wherever he goes. If anyone must come after me, he must deny himself. I'm no longer Lord of my own life. Jesus is the Lord of my life. Take up my cross, which means I'm about to die. It ain't gonna be good. Paul in Galatians talks about being crucified to the world and the world crucified to him. On both sides, it's painful. And number three, they follow me. You know, I, this has been kind of an unspoken thing in, in our marriage as Suzanne and I talk about how ministry goes, is that we've always somewhat said, God, we'll go wherever you want us to go. We'll serve whoever you want us to serve. And that's not that fun sometimes. Because sometimes it's hard to, people, hard to serve people who don't want to be served by you, right? It's hard to go places where it's you and Jesus. But we've consistently said, God, wherever you want us to go, we will follow. And I don't think that's radical Christianity. I think that's what we signed up for. Right, that, that's normative Christianity. Asking the question, Jesus, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to serve? How do you want me to spend this money? What do you want me to say in this situation? 
that you might get glory because you're the lamb who died for me and cleansed me by your blood. God, how do you want to use me? Who do you want me to serve? Where do I step in so that you would get glory and not me? So that my preferences and my desires are no longer the controlling ethic in my life. The lamb is. The lamb says what we ought to do. The lamb says what truths we ought to believe. The lamb says how we ought to spend our money and serve others and disciple those who are uh, behind us in the faith. That's what the lamb says. That's what he tells us to do. So our lives are characterized by following the lamb wherever he goes. Finally, in verse 4, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. You know what first fruits are? First fruits mean, means kind of one of two things. Paul, at the end of the book of Romans, talks about a, a guy um, who he calls the first fruits of Achaia. I think the ESV, it's like Romans 16. The ESV says that he's the first convert in an area. And the idea of the first fruits is that this is a guarantee of all uh, of the harvest that is to come. God will be faithful to his promises to bring all in because of the promise of the first fruits. But the first fruits also in Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 18. I could be wrong on that. You can look it up later. Uh, it has to do with total and complete dedication to God. It's, a, it's a, a gift that's given to God, acknowledging, God, you can use this however you want. God, you have the last say, so I'm going to bring the very best of the harvest, and I'm going to lay it in your hands. And I'm going to declare, God, that you can do with it what you want. So it continues this idea of full and complete dedication and devotion to the purposes of Jesus Christ in a dark, sinful, perverse day. And they have been, you see the term? They've been redeemed. They've been ransomed, like the song in Revelation chapter 5 says. So they've been sanctified. They are seen. They have a song, sexuality, set apart, and finally, their speech. Look at verse 5. In their mouth, no lie was found. Imagine the false signs and wonders happening in this day, and there are people that you can go to who tell you the truth. You have people like that? You have people who don't pull punches? Who, when you go and talk to them, they know that their speech is going to be characterized by the very truthfulness of God? That's who these 144,000 are. No lie was found in their mouth. They are going to be totally reliable as the prophets of old in the Old Testament. That they will tell you the truth about your sin, about righteousness, about belief in the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. They will be to be counted on in this day. And finally, they are blameless. Now, you think... Being sexually pure in a culture is hard. Let me challenge you to control your tongue for one day. Here's what James says. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, 
able also to bridle his whole body. Let me come back at this and kind of like a church culture thing. A lot of times the church gets, a, gets an ugly hardness about it that we aren't the ones who commit all those bad sins out there. We don't control our tongue. We, don't, uh, we struggle with gossip and slander and bitterness and unthankfulness, but we're not like those people out in the culture. You with me? And now these people are characterized not just by sexual purity, but by verbal purity. That their tongue is under the control and the desires of the lamb. So when the lamb teaches them how to speak, they speak the words of truth. This is all through the New Testament. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good as for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Try that for like three hours. You're gonna, like, you're gonna break a filling. Isn't this a great picture? Do you wanna know what God is doing in your life right now? These are the areas of your life that Jesus is after. Now don't be discouraged. I know y'all got quiet. You go, oh man. Can I show you the the secret to discipleship? The secret to real spiritual, it's already, it's in this passage. The secret to real spiritual progress, because like you read this and I read this and I go, oh man, my life, gosh, my sanctification, there are all these hills and there are these valleys and there are these places where I don't know if God's gonna work and I shout, God help my unbelief and God, I I can't see what you're doing and I'm confused and frustrated and angry and it's hard for me to trust you. And you ever feel like that? That man, everything feels like it's against me and I'm just trying to like, you know, drag myself uphill, spiritually speaking. The secret to to discipleship, the secret to Christian transformation is all the way back at the beginning of our passage. Look at 14, verse one. Then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000. See, the, the secret to spiritual growth is being with him. When Jesus calls the disciples in Mark chapter four, it says he chose 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. See, before they go and do ministry, before they go and cast out demons and heal the sick and and do all of these things that Jesus calls them to do, the first thing he calls them to do is to be with him. Because we, as American pragmatic individuals, like to be about it and be doing the things that we think we ought to be doing, which means a lot of times we skip the being with God and being transformed in his presence and watching God work in us the character and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And we set that aside and we go do some stuff. And we go, all right, we did some stuff. We feel better. But the picture of discipleship in Revelation 14 is not just that their ministry is great, but they've actually become like Christ. You with me? 
so that they're, they're being transformed from one image of glory to the next. So as you go through your week this week, as you go through the seasons of life, of the hills and the valleys and the struggles and all of that, please don't forget to be with him. Right, that's Jesus in, in John 15. Abide in me and I in you, for apart from me you can do Nothing. And you need to have a vision of victory. Because I believe for you, because I believe for me, because the scriptures say it, not because I'm super encouraged this morning, but I believe because Philippians says it, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I believe it. Because he's promised it. And he'll get us there. Amen? Father in heaven, we need this word to us here this morning. We need to be reminded of the ways that you are changing us, not just reminded of the things that we ought to do, but we desire to be the kind of people that you want us to be. For those who are in this room and feel maybe a measure of discouragement or unbelief or uncertainty, I pray that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly as we admonish one another singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in our heart to God. Father, would you make us a church that is captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ, captivated by his perseverance with us, that he takes sinners and he makes them new, that he takes uh, those who are perverse in their speech and their sexuality and he takes them and washes them and cleanses them and justifies them. And one day you will present us pure and spotless before the throne of God with great joy. So, Father, it's in your name that we sing. It's the, the joy of our hearts that you would love us and that you would die for us, that you would forgive us and redeem us. So, Father, may the song of the people in this place be that, that God is great, that our sins are forgiven, that we are redeemed, and that you have not left us alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.